It's not necessarily about the outcome, it's about the journey and the connections. Why is it that we think there's always some kind of quick fix or we seem incapable of taking a wider view on these quite complicated systems? It's one thing being smart, but it's how you make the connections with that information, so... No one outworked him. And no one probably had the mindset he had at the time he was running the way he did. Hi, welcome to the Pylon Ultra Pod. If this is your first time listening to us, hello, and maybe start with episode one in this series for a better understanding of what we're talking about and why it's important to us as athletes and as we navigate this human journey. If you've been listening already, then thank you and apologies for the short break in episodes. Both James and I have had a few running projects over the last three to four weeks on top of our normal work and other commitments. So this week we're keen to dig deeper into the areas we've already discussed. In episode one we talked more generally about self-awareness and collaboration. How does work in that area help us to live better lives and get more from our athletic endeavours? In the last episode we went a bit deeper and we talked at length about cognitive biases, how and why we might be conditioned without really being aware of it and how these gaps in our awareness can fundamentally hold us back. So I was quite keen to talk more about self-awareness and how any kind of introspection may help or hinder our development. We already talked about how some of our beliefs in the external world are flawed. So how can we be sure that what we think we want is a route to happiness or at the very least in our own self-interests? As always, we're not claiming to be experts in these fields, but we are willing and keen to share some views and debate the relevance and usefulness and to learn from each other through some honest conversations and hopefully with some feedback and engagement from you, the listener. Our aim, as always, is to make improvements where we need to, as we do in our running and with the athletes that we coach, and hopefully to trigger something in you to do the same. So here is the next episode of the Pylon Ultra pod. Hi James, how are you doing? It's been a few weeks since we've sat down in front of a few microphones and there's been a lot happening since then. Mate, I um, I, I say I'm really good. I'm uh, like yourself. The reason there's been a few weeks is we've been kind of busy um, running around a wee bit, yeah. um, covering a mile or two here or there, and or in your case, um, slopping through bogs in some cases. And um, I'm feeling really, really good. It's been a busy few weeks with work as well. Um, and I've got a wee bit of an injury just now, tweaked my back. So I'm having a few days off running. And I have to say, I'm really, really frustrated at the lack of running but I'm feeling the benefit, I think, physically of just that dial back, which you have to do from time to time. So I'm sticking a silver lining over that cloud just now that says, you know what, you would have probably had to take a few days off at some point, so you might as well as do it while you're convalescing. So I'm in a great place, mate. What about you? <laughs> you're a master at finding a silver lining, James. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Even injury doesn't affect you. You can find a positive. Yeah, uh, yeah, I wanted to maybe talk to you. Obviously, um, we have a wee bit of time here at the start and it's good to get some general conversation from you about your FKT. Obviously, you came out of an F- another FKT out of lockdown, uh, which was amazing. Um, I'd, I wasn't super close to it on the day, obviously, because I was out and about myself. But um, you seem to take a lot out of doing these kind of FKT adventures and I'm just keen to understand what, what it is you get out of doing these. You know, I could I'd probably sum it up in 
and uh, against there's three key things, right? One, and I'm not I'm not sure if I'm putting these in priority order, but they might naturally come in priority order. I get to spend some time with my dad and my mate Scoosh come along to crew as yeah. well, who are two guys I'm really close to, obviously. Um, they two are probably closer to each other than they are to me, <laughs> but that's a whole different story. Um, but um, you get to spend some time with them, so it's not my adventure, it's our adventure, which is which is great. Um, and then last time round and this time round, we'd been starved of social contact properly for a while. Mm-hmm. And then people you know and people you've got loads of time for and great friends spent some time to come out and run with you. So you actually go beyond just the likes, shares and emoji thumbs ups on WhatsApp and and Facebook and Twitter and stuff to actually spend some time in physical contact with people you've never met and people you've met loads of times. And that's really enriching. Uh, And and I guess the third thing is, is I think as I've got older and maybe became more mature in my running career, medals and trinkets mean a lot less than experiences and adventures. Um, And I'm less likely to remember one in a 50k around a glen than I am to remember the day I did something like what, what I did last weekend on the five coastal path. And I think you can't you can't really put a price on those memories and those adventures and then getting to share it with, you know, people you love and respect and have got loads of time for. I don't think there's much better than that, mate. And what was the coastal path like, James, for anybody who doesn't know it? I don't know it intimately, but and I obviously know the distance, but maybe tell us a wee bit about it. Yeah, so it's about it's about 115, 117 miles there or thereabouts, and and it's probably a, a half of two path, um, sorry, a path of two halves, um, where it's really, really, really runnable for um, the first 60 or so miles. It's pretty flat, got wee undulations here or there. It's got lots of twists and turns, um, and awkward ones for the GPX to pick up on because it'll be down side streets and up alleyways because they're trying to take you through towns, yeah. right? So it's a wee bit frustrating for that point of view. I'd prefer it, I think, from an experience point of view for it to stick to the coast as much as possible, mm-hmm. but at the same time, totally understand why they would want to take you inland a wee bit to go by the shops and, and chippies that the East Nuka Fife is um, so famous mm-hmm. for. Um, and then it gets a wee bit gnarly, Um and when I say a wee bit gnarly, you're you're getting to about seventy miles, and all of a sudden it's it's rocks and beaches and um, stairs up and down, and it lo- it looks okay in a GPX. You're like, oh, that's only a couple hundred feet of climb, but actually it's about ninety stairs, mm-hmm. and they are big stairs, and they are single track and all of that. So that takes the wind out your sails and totally destroys your rhythm. But I tell you what, Paul, it is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. At that point, round the East Nook of Fife. Some of the best views. Now that I got really lucky, had a beautiful day for it. And you're coming round sort of the section between, certainly between Crail and King's Barns and then on to um, St Andrews. So you're taking in areas like Ely and stuff. Mm-hmm. You're just looking out. You know, I don't know about you. I, do you get this, mate? When you just look out onto the sea and you think to yourself, I could just breathe in forever looking at that view. You know, I'll never need to breathe it again because I can just suck in all that calm. Mm-hmm. And you you get that there. I think there's something about like the sea and the oceans and big mountain ranges as well. It makes you feel it makes you feel smaller, doesn't it? And um, like the world is way bigger than you, and um, it's quite reassuring in some ways. I think. I, I totally agree with you. I think that's why I love Rannick Moor actually so much. But what what's interesting is is there was a study just completed by Stanford, totally off off tangent here. But and what they did was um, they they got I think it was about two hundred students. Um, and they had a control group, um, and then they had a, um, a a placebo group, if you like. Well, it wasn't really a placebo group, but a, a group who were able to do whatever they want. But their control group, 
effectively were a group of students who they had a set process for them to make sure they get 20 minutes in nature every mm -hmm. day. So that might have been in the trees or in the fields and what have you. And their cortisol levels, which is effectively the cause of stress, where the markers for them post their time in nature were down by like 40 to 50% over the other people who weren't engaging in that and who are social media daft and had the phones in their faces when they're walking about outside. And I think that's that's exactly what you, you mean. It's not just the sea, it's the mountains, it's the trees, it's the trails. And you get that on that five coastal path at that point. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, I've seen some, I've seen um, some research about uh, kids with ADHD and stuff and when they were spending three to four hours in a forest every day all that reduced, all that disappeared and almost entirely, you know, and they could be taken off the drugs and medication that they were on and it's about being in nature and being close to stuff and um, having some adventure, I think, makes such a big difference to everyone. Totally, it's, it's like that old um, statement where you go, do you know what, what if I told you there was a drug that would reduce your risk <laughs> of cancer, heart disease, yeah. blah, 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 and then you go, oh, oh yeah, give yeah. me loads of that and you're like, that's fine, just go, just go and run or walk for 30 minutes every day. And it's like that that's essentially what it is. And then do that in nature. You're getting double you're getting double bubble for your yeah. effort. So so the path goes round there and I, I had all that great feeling whilst I was being sick. <laughs> um and then um and then and, and then the, towards the later end it becomes less coastal and you're inland a wee bit. But it's it's a really, really nice path. Um I think it would be easier the opposite direction I did it mm -hmm. on. Um and there's just some beautiful there's some beautiful places you go through, like Tensmuir Woods. Um I went up up round Norman's Law, not to the top of it, but it was pitch black. But you could just tell it was really nice trail, mm. you know, because. But it, obviously, I just had trees either side of me and some some muddy plods to go through. But it was really it was really nice. I would totally recommend people to do parts of it. But I'd probably start. I'd probably say, kinda north of Kirkcaldy Methyl and what have you would be the best place to be, um, and then just work it from there. But just gorgeous, mate. Good, well done, mate. That was really good. Thank you. Um. Yeah, yeah, but mate, what about what about you? Because obviously I did that. You were busy doing something else. But even before you done something else, as if a precursor, as if a precursor to a big FKT, which we'll talk about in a second, you decided to run your first massive virtual race event, which demanded that you were probably awake for about thirty six hours straight. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, exposure, exposure. There was quite a buzz online and certainly amongst my athletes and friends who were doing it how did it go for you yeah it was it was it was amazing it was a lot of work um i think i talked about it in an earlier podcast and at that point we just weren't sure what way it was going to go really you know would we get enough people taking part to make it competitive would it be challenging enough for people who have run ultras before but also a great way for people to run their first ultra race as well and we were worried, not worried, but we weren't sure how the whole concept was going to work on the day. You know, if we couldn't deliver the right messages in the right way, then the whole thing might have just felt like any other kind of virtual race. And, you know, I had this thing in my mind about it feeling like it was some kind of live event, even though we weren't able to do it as a live uh, race event. So it was a whole load of hard work, mostly from Karen, I must add. Um, and we ended up putting on a really great event. It was super challenging at all levels. I think the six-hour guys were racing really hard, a lot of them. And then others that were maybe doing their first ultra, they were having to run super hard just to stay in the race, really. Um, so it was quite demanding for the six-hour guys. And then we had the 12 and 24-hour people who were absolute heroes. Um, I think it was really only when I was publishing messages and stuff late on at night and, and uh, 
some of the social content and maybe it was hour 10 or maybe it was hour 20 and I realised then mentally how challenging the whole event was just that added level of uncertainty and also maybe being back home in between exposures as well it kind of made it easy and immediate for people to consider giving up um, so I think it was much harder than some of the normal um, races if I'm honest um, and it will actually be something that people will be able to grow from so when you've done that really tough thing it becomes their new baseline you know and they can build from there and then when they're faced with other tough things in their life or in other races you know you've been to a certain level already before and you can do it again so um you can maybe take on bigger challenges in the future so i think we'd, we'd definitely do another one and i would absolutely love to do like a live version of it i think it could be a really great community thing if everybody was together and everybody's waiting for the next exposure distance to be published it could be a real fun thing to do so yeah it was a great experience it was um it wasn't perfectly timed for me going on to then do uh, my own kind of running project um two days after and I never slept Karen and I never really slept on the Saturday at all right through just to make sure people were getting what they needed and everybody was safe and well um, mate, I think I think it's brilliant obviously I had, I had a few athletes doing it and a few friends doing it and um, if I was to describe one of the most amazing things that come out for, for them as growth as humans and athletes was anyone who got through any of those races whether you started the six hour hard and held on um, for a it doesn't matter whether it was a win or a finish or whatever the point was is your effort was hard throughout through the people who done the 24 especially when you throw them a a one mile exposure like at 14 or 15 hours and they've got 50 minutes at home to decide whether or not quitting's an option and the bed's calling Uh which is rather cruel but absolutely part of the game right I think you gave them you gave them the opportunity to build their go again power see when you're in an ultra and you're like I can't go and and, and, you know, you almost go, I'm going to quit. I get to the age stage and I'm done. These people who've experienced that should know that they may only need a short period of time to um, recompose themselves. And they've, they've basically got a go again button that they never had before. And I think that's a really powerful thing to get out of exposure for. I them. think so. I think so. And it was really great for me. We, we had a bunch of comments afterwards and Karen got a lot of emails from people. And there was a whole community thing as well. There were some people saying that, um, they were doing it and the whole street ended up being aware of what they were doing because they were wondering why these people were running around in loops and they were coming out and supporting and taking pictures and uh, making food and having barbecues and all that which is like a real bonus for me that we're, we're building some community that way as well yeah totally totally as, we, as you often say Paul it's it's not necessarily about the outcome it's about the journey and the connections and I think there was a lot of that went on so well done but we've kind of hinted at something else once or twice um you had your own adventure, so I was out for a piddly 19 and a half hours, which is basically like a prologue to um, the, what, what you did. So you and um, a certain Mr. Graham Connolly spent a bit of time running the Cape Wrath Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the noise I would yeah. make if I did yeah. that as well. It was uh, it was an experience for sure, James, um, for a whole host of reasons. I'm not sure I'd want to repeat it at all. But I certainly don't regret doing it other than not being able to focus on anything for more than a couple of hours without falling asleep um, the last couple of weeks. Uh, the night sweats, the tick bites and those indelible images of Graham's feet, which most of us have seen on social media. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> but like similar to what you were talking about with your FKT, it was a real shared experience in the end, not just with Graham because I was running with him the whole time, but 
Um, also with Gavin and Bob who were out there the whole time just crewing for us and making sure we, we could just focus on the running side of things. So um, we had a really great shared experience and I think that's quite important and something I'm definitely more aware of now than I have been in the past, I think. Brilliant. I mean, having Gavin and Bob, right, that's the... Is that the Lennon and McCartney crew? And I don't know, you know, it's just having two guys like that who um, are just, I don't know, I, I, those guys are that cool. They could freeze a drink themselves just by standing next to it, right? So that must have been quite good to have cool people, but I guess they would have been really, really on it as well for you. And I, and I suppose maybe what's maybe a good thing for us to do and, um, is maybe have a proper chat with me, you, and maybe some of the guys who were involved about what happened in those three hours, three days, sorry, three hours, that was <laughs> three days, 23 hours and 50 minutes. Yeah. 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 Yep oh, that. absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think there'd be some learning there for, for all of us. And even just be good to hear Gav's view on stuff as well. Cause Gav's like, you know what he's like, he's an uber chilled guy. And I guess we were probably had some concerns on that at times that maybe Gav will just be super cool all throughout, but the minute we started and they were crewing for us, he was just unbelievable, James. He was just on it the whole time. Here you go, handing you stuff before you even knew you were going to ask for it. Yeah, it was it was amazing. And Bob knows so much about Scotland, the trails and the locations and everything. Um, yeah, it's a real fountain of knowledge, which was brilliant to have. Yeah, yeah. We need to we need to get um we need to get a street, a road, or a hill named after Bob. Yeah. Um, he's that that that's how much he knows. He's um. Yeah, he's forgot more than we'll ever we'll ever know about these these parts of the world. So yeah, great crew and obviously great company with Graham as well. But the less said about his feet, the better. Absolutely, um, yeah. I'm still for all still of us. Shock. For all of us. So I'm sure people listening will be eager, eager, and eager, eager, eager to hear more about that story because um, it is such an epic undertaking. And unless you've set foot on some of those trails, and I think trail. <laughs> is maybe a stretch mm-hmm. of the word. Um, um, those lines that go up hills needlessly, um, um, I don't think you'll appreciate it. So let, let's bring that to life in, in the next episode we do. I think it'll be amazing. Yeah, we'll do that as a wee bonus episode or something in between this next one, yeah? Yeah. Cool. Brilliant. I look forward to that, even for my own sake. Okay, Good. cool. So we crack on then with the yeah. show. So getting on to the business of this episode, uh, we had a good call the other day about what we'd like to try and cover in this conversation. And as often happens for me anyway, um, there's always something that seems to cross over in terms of what we've taken in individually from the books we've been reading or the presentations that we've heard. And we don't we don't really share reading lists, do we, James? We certainly don't do it in advance of these conversations. So I'm always like really surprised pleasantly surprised when we continue to find some shared ground that we've reached from individual directions so it kind of feels like we're being steered in a good direction and it merits further discussion and i don't know if that's just coincidence or it's synchronicity maybe i don't know um so to start i was keen to explore this idea of self-awareness and introspection um something that we either avoid or we take to with quite blunt tools sometimes and without realizing or having the capacity to detect the intricacies and the real truth of what drives us now in um 21 lessons for the 21st century uh, yuval harari wrote in the past we humans have learned to control the world outside us we'd very little control over the world inside us um, and i think that's never really been more relevant than it is now um, we seem to have this reductionist view on everything understandably maybe 
um, from nutrition to health and human performance to ecology, sustainability and even weather. Um, and I think we even we deem feelings and emotions to be separate from actual physical responses. Um, but I think we should try to acknowledge against this flow of things that, that nothing we say or the actions we take are spontaneous no matter how much we like to think they are. And they're really based on patterns and conditioning that have been inscribed in humans since day one. And they're also influenced by, obviously, by external events and factors like our environment, chemicals around us and in us and technology. And we seem to like to have these distinct solutions for any given problem, and we often ignore the wider context. So... I don't know, I need need to lose weight and get stronger, so I'll eat more protein, and we think that's a solution. I've got a sore head, so I'll take some painkillers. We need to graze more cattle, so we'll cut down these trees. I need to race faster, so I'll do all my training at tempo pace and above. And clearly, solutions to problems are generally a good thing, but why is it that we think there's always some kind of quick fix, or we seem incapable of taking a wider view on these quite complicated systems like weather systems and the environment and stuff um oof, i mean without being in danger of criticizing the very thing um or without being in danger of becoming the very thing i'm about to criticize um it's because of our lack of um attention or, or you know our, our attention spans have shrunk studies have shown that um we're always driven towards a quick fix because our lives are so busy and so on and so forth. So we end up being caught in this trap of recognising a problem and then having this thing which um, in in kind of coaching terms and um, sociological terms is called action bias. Mm -hmm. We're biased towards action over thinking. So I've got a sore head so I'll take a tablet. Wait a minute, why have I got a sore head? Might be the, the thing to answer. But we, we often don't do that. And then because we take a tablet and it solves the sore head in that moment, we then often don't go back to to even reflect on the problem after it's been solved. And, you know, it's like ambulances at the bottom of a cliff. You know, they're like, why do people keep falling off the cliff? We'll stick some ambulances down there and we'll, we'll help <laughs> them. It's like, well, why don't you just build a fence? Why don't you build a fence at the yeah. top? And then people won't fall. But often our thinking is about the action bias. So we become reactive to a problem as opposed to um, trying to become proactive about preventing it. And you know as well as I do, prehab beats rehab, whether it's an injury or life and in problems. Um, and one of the things that I think is a big problem in this space, Paul, a massive problem in this play- space, is as if, if you look at the names of books, self-help mm-hmm. books or content online, whether it be videos or articles, how many of them start with a how-to ellipses and then it'll be how to um, live a better life and it's a five minute video or how to how to lose seven pounds in four days mm-hmm. and it's like and, and and the problem with that is it's it's all back into that reactive action bias mindset which sucks people in because it promises some sort of quick fix but it's neither sustainable nor likely actually to be applicable to every individual so it therefore becomes nothing more then the next action you take that doesn't get you any closer to solving the problem that you're you're living with, because you've not really identified the true problem. You've just 
um, you've basically tried to work on the um, the issue rather than de- identifying the cause. So your symptoms over cause. That I think that's a massive problem right now, especially in Western society, where we're just go, 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 go. So when a problem occurs, we're like, don't have time for this. So I'll just try and fix it quick. And it just it compounds the problem. Right? Yeah, I can't work out, James, if we've if we've driven that. So it's been a need in us that we need these bite-sized solutions all the time or it's coming top down and we're just getting used to it. So that's what we think is is the right answer. Did, was there ever a time we could take a step back and look at the whole system? I don't know. Um, I, I mean, it's it's without having lived through the, the experience to say the earlier part of the... Um, the, the centuries or, or in the past and I think we might have mentioned this in the, the last podcast but if, if we didn't I'm just going to recap on the point that there is more information in a copy of the New York Times weekly magazine than the, um, the, the average person in the 1800s would have consumed in their whole life and, and part of the problem is, is there's almost too much information yeah. and too many competing views. So actually being able to get to the, 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 the nub of the matter becomes really difficult. So in many ways, it's a curse mm-hmm. to be smarter. Um, and and I, I, was, I was actually doing a bit of learning the other day, Paul. And, and I think maybe this, is, this maybe answers your point, or at least the concept. And I guess it doesn't solve the problem, but it maybe moves us on to the next um, stage of how do you deal with it, which is... It's one thing being smart, right? It's one thing having all the information. But if you don't make the connections between that information and what you know and what you need, all it is is information. So a how-to video, for example, just becomes more information. And it might be the wrong information, and then you might be using it in the wrong way. So connecting information with the need is really important. But because we've got this action bias mindset, i.e. I need to do something, you don't then think about the connections because you're just a, you're wholly in reactive action mm. mode. It's like it's like the um, someone who maybe gets a blister on an ultra who goes, uh, I need to change my socks. So they change their socks, but actually the blister's not going to go away. So treat the blister, and then maybe work out why you've got that. Is it a stone in your shoe, or do you need to change your shoe? Whatever it means. But sometimes we're in so much a hurry just to move through the problem that we don't we don't fix the cause. And I think it's that. I think it's the connections between what we know and what it means that. I don't think we're, we're we're taking enough time to think about. So maybe too much information, and people are too time pressured as well, and that's why we kind of reach out for these small solutions packages. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the thing is though, time pressure is a for many people, time pressure is is actually um, it's a myth. Um, in the sense that we create our own time pressure. Um, and this has become really prevalent um, as, as we've been through the, the lockdown of the, the, the last year and a half, right? So talk about time pressure. One of the things that time pressure causes us to do is to multitask. So for example, the right thing to do if you've got a headache, and back to your headache um, example earlier, the right thing to do might be to hydrate a bit better, maybe get a bit of salt in your system because it might be a bit of an imbalance on something like that or something, some other indicator that can cause you to have a, a sore head. Um, and then lie down for 15 minutes and just calm the body, you know, take out the stress hormones, all that kind of great stuff, get in touch with nature, whatever it might be. But because we're we're fixated with trying to be productive, we end up multitasking problems as well. And apparently when you're multitasking, you're something like 40% more likely to make an error, whether it be a spelling error mm. or um, an error in the content, whatever you're doing, right? You, you'll make an error. And when you're multitasking, you're actually 25% less productive 
but you've got this kind of false positive of going, I got loads done because I did lots of lots of things really poorly rather than I did one or two things greatly. Because again, we, we create our own time pressures through this need for, I don't know, fulfillment, this need for completion. I, I, I really don't know how you deal with that in, in the chaotic world we lead in, we, we, we lead and live in, but sometimes taking that step back to slow down is the very thing you need to speed up. Um, so yeah, it could be, could be that, it could be a whole bunch of things. And it's likely to be more than one thing because if it wasn't, we could do a how-to in five <laughs> minutes and stick a video exactly. on yeah. YouTube. Five-minute yeah. podcast, done. Yeah, yeah exactly, boom. Okay, um, I think in the last episode, we agreed that our thoughts and beliefs about the external world are at best probably flawed um, and we all carry some of these hidden biases that we went through. Um, and at times we can run into problems of thinking we know more about something than we do just because we don't have the level of knowledge and understanding to even realise what we do and don't know, do and don't know. Um, so going by that understanding, um, we might just think, yeah, I'm going to work hard on improving my self-awareness. I'm going to think more about what I do and say and why. And it seems like a quite a logical approach to me overall. But what if we're actually delusional about our own self-interest, right? So most of us probably think that we are directing our lives pretty well overall and that we know what we want and ultimately what's best for us, regardless of whether or not we can put that into practice or even have the resources to do it in some kind of beneficial time frame. But I think there's a good chance that the number of biases we have in the outer world are just as prevalent internally and are as equally or even more difficult to detect potentially. So I wondered if you thought how we go about addressing some of that and, and do we really know what is best for us? Do we really know what's going to make us happy? And I'm I'm not sure we do. Um, I mean, obviously we're broad brushing here um, at a high level with, you know, language like we and all that stuff, because we have to, right? Because we're, we're not talking about we Jean from down the street yeah. or Bob from up the road. Um, so when, when you talk about it in, in generic terms, and and I guess especially in the kind of pressured world we live in in the Western environment, I'm not sure we do because um, we know what will make us happy because I think we get fed through all that various external stimuli um, images or standards or things that are both unachievable, unrealistic, and actually nowhere near where we think we should be, but we then end up connecting with them as the things that will make mm -hmm. us happy. Like people go, oh yeah, I just want to be famous or I want to be rich. And there's like that kind of classic thing where something, I, I'm making the numbers up, but it's definitely a majority of lottery winners end up with depression. Mm -hmm. And they think, oh, well, I'm going to be rich and all my problems are solved. But actually you end up with a whole bunch of other problems. And and there's a, there's a phrase... Um, there's a phrase in, in, in coaching you use called coaching the ghost. But I think sometimes there's that internal coaching that you would do with yourself where you're, you're having a conversation with yourself and going, all I need is this. But if you don't actually work out what sits beneath this, like, for example, I just want to be rich in the case of a lottery winner. But actually what you don't realise is what sits beneath that and then beneath that and beneath that again is is it's not really that you probably want to be rich. It's that just that you don't want to, you don't want to be a multi-millionaire. You just don't want to feel the pressure towards the end of the month of maybe not having enough food on the, the table to feed the kids or having to make a choice between waiting on the, the whoopsies being put out with Asda or, or going in at a normal time because that feels like it demeans you from a social view point of view. And I think there's, there's something in about how external factors 
cause us to be quite shallow in our internal happiness because a lot of our internal happiness is driven by the perspective that we are the perspective or the, the things we demonstrate to others. So I, I think you're 100% right. And when you call that kind of the, the kind of coach and the ghost statement, the bit that sits beneath that is, is then just having the guts to ask yourself, what else is I really want? And what, what do I really, really want? And going through that time and time again. And I, I think genuinely think that if you've not been through that process of thinking really hard, I think you're, internal happiness indicators, the things that you think will make you happy, are likely to be quite shallow and often miles away from what you really, really want. Um, and when you get that happiness, how often do you see it when people say, all I want to do is run a sub three marathon to do it? And then they're like, I feel deflated. I feel mm -hmm. nothing. There's no emotion out of that. Because actually, it's not really that. That's just some sort of arbitrary thing they put on it. And I, I would really, really encourage people to think two, three, four layers before below the thing they think will make them happy and go, what is it that actually builds up to this happiness, not what the outcome is, like a sub-three marathon? So yeah, I think I, I totally agree with you, Paul. And I would even go as far as to say, I don't know what that is for me. I'm pretty sure you're still working it out for you. So it's not like a like a bad thing or a weakness. I think it's just a thing that we should all be open to challenging in and of ourselves. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I, I can't answer that question either. I think you're totally right. And like, how many times have you maybe convinced yourself that even something small, like, I don't know, a purchase or a particular outcome of an event or something was going to make your life a wee bit better or a lot better? Or how many times have we created a really clear future scenario of how bad things will be if you make this wrong decision or something isn't doesn't work out as you hoped it might and we're really quick in doing that aren't we and and we don't really understand what's behind it half the time a, a good example you talked the, the purchase one and, and i think that's a really good example of external factors you know the materialism of the western world you know you've got to have the latest phone or the latest the latest sneakers or whatever other language you want to use you then go and buy them Chances are you might have put yourself into credit card debt to get them. And then what? It's just a thing. And then actually, two, three, four months down the line, that thing that you've got, the sheen and the buzz and that, um, you know, that little um, excitement you got from getting that thing you thought would make you happy, you're now dealing with the consequences of it, which might be interest in your credit card or, or some other challenge. And I think sometimes that's a, a, another thing you need to be careful about is, is at what cost does this thing that I want um, entail? Yeah, I think it's I think it's prevalent for everyone really. I mean, even looking at my life sometimes, um, and I've got a relatively complicated life because I'm not even supposed to be in Scotland, but I've got a place here and I'm renting somewhere out in Chamonix and I've got a car out there now and everything. And then I, I actually am able to take a step back sometimes and think the more stuff that I own, it's more stuff that you worry about and more stuff that you've got to maintain and more stuff that's losing value. And the things that I think are going to bring me some kind of joy and happiness actually become things that are kind of hanging around your neck sometimes. Yeah. I, I, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly that. And sometimes letting go can be so hard because of sentimentality or the work or the effort that we're into um, attaining that thing whatever it may be um, and then it just becomes it almost becomes a vicious circle of apathy yeah i think i think we're really guilty of spending too much time thinking about the things that we 
really want in our immediate future and we can't really see that life events are at best they're ambiguous and the terrible things that happen with some hindsight obviously often turn out to be really good for us in the long run and so we have a brain that is constantly creating these fictional futures that seem to be they seem to become the maps that we choose for navigating life and this future life prediction simulator thing that's going on in our mind is is how we maybe make our decisions and how we work towards what we think is going to be a more fulfilled life uh, so i wondered if you had any um good examples of situations in your life that would maybe highlight this james so maybe some darker moments that you would have normally you would have actively avoided you know it's the things you didn't want to happen in your life absolutely and if they happen it's going to be terrible but in the end these things when they happen they didn't cause you to feel as bad as you thought they might and they didn't last for as long as you thought it would yeah yeah oh i mean, I mean there's there's a lot you can pick from right and you could you could jump into bereavement or, or all of these things i'll give you an example from a work context right I started a, a new role maybe three years ago or what have you. Um, I was excited to do it. I had no idea what I was doing. I was busking it, right? I was completely busking it. Um, but I was I had confidence in my problem-solving skills and my ability to, you know, learn very quickly and, and get into the, the, the gig. But almost from the off, I didn't really connect with the person I was working for. Um, and... There was a whole bunch of external factors at play there, whether it be other people within the team or what was going on in my life at the time or um, just what was going on in their life, whatever it might be. And what, what happened was, imagine that we didn't go down, we didn't set off in the same path at the same time with the same ideas. And instead of recognizing that earlier, because it was a new relationship and you didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to just lean in and be really honest and say things that might have destroyed the relationship. What we what we ended up doing was that relationship became harder and harder and harder. So instead of being just a wee bit apart at the outset and not having the right conversation to make sure we were aligned on a whole bunch of things, whether it be principles, values, tasks, strategy, whatever it might be, we kind of didn't face into that conversation until about seven or eight months in, um, at which point I'd written my resignation letter. I was gone. Um, I was thinking about setting up my own business and I was willing to walk away from a career and a job because I was unhappy. And then I went on holiday for a fortnight, Paul. And I was when I was on holiday, I was talking to Louise and I never talked to Louise about work. I was like, I think I'm, I'm done for this, you know, and we're going to have to take a risk. And since we've got enough money where we can, you know, we can survive for this amount of time without me earning. And you got get to that point to say, look, it'll be March before we're on the beans. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what we'll do. And then about two days before I went back to work, I was like, all I need to do is have a conversation and see where we're at. And then see when I brought that conversation together. And, you know, you're dreading that conversation because it's like, it's, there's emotion involved and there's personality and you make me feel like this and I must make you feel like that. And see, as soon as we got out in the open, we both realised we were thinking the same things the same way. We were both unhappy. We were both um, dissatisfied with the way things were going. We were both unclear about why we were the way we were with each other. All of that kind of great stuff. And see, when we, we, we brought it back and we got it back into the room and then we just, we walked out that room and, and I remember sitting with a guy and he said to me, you know, one thing I'll guarantee you from this moment onwards is, is I'll give you creative license 
and free reign. I'll allow you to be as bold as you need to and I'll trust that your intent is always pure and you'll be trying to do the best job you can. So even when you get it wrong, it's not because of negligence. It's because of um, that's part of the process to get better. It says, and, and, and instead of me second-guessing you and questioning you and making you feel that you're hopeless, I'm going to back you, I'm going to support you, and I'm going to guide you. Mm-hmm. Overnight, that relationship went from disaster to being one of the best people I worked mm-hmm. for. And, and all that while, for six, seven, eight months, we avoided a conversation that could have changed that. And I think that's because I was internalising stuff. He was internalising stuff. Back to what you were saying earlier about what we think inside. Instead of just bring it out into the open. And it doesn't always go that way. You know, that isn't the solution to these problems. But I'll tell you one thing. The weight off my shoulders and the work I've been able to do in the last two and a bit years is the result, night and day. Yeah, I think we're, I think, yeah. I think the, the human mind, you know, will automatically create a narrative. You know, we fill in those gaps and we do that future prediction of, of what the situation is going to be and and we can paint that quite negatively quite a lot you know and even when it is a bad situation like your situation or a bad event has happened you've lost someone or a race was cancelled or you couldn't finish that race or you get injured you know two weeks before your big event and stuff and and we tend to think this is the end of the world and it's going to be awful and i'm going to feel this way for a very long time and but sometimes these events I don't mean they happen for a reason, but I think there's some real positives can come out of these events, but we we don't seem to have the capacity to to understand that these events aren't necessarily good and bad and binary like that. There's there's some ambiguity between them. And it's similar, it's funny, you mentioned about um, uh, lottery winners and stuff. I saw some research that was done on lottery winners and paraplegics a year after these life-changing situations. And despite what we think in our own intuitions both have a very similar level of life satisfaction and you would never think that was the case but that's the way that we paint things in our mind automatically i also think that's born out of the fact that um when you've been through a trauma like a paraplegic would have been whatever's you know taken up with that journey to be in that situation i think your level of appreciation and self-efficacy and self-awareness you know you know what you know what tough is and you know that you can influence that to the better. And I think if you become that lottery winner, you're almost being parachuted from, you know, not having nothing, but having to think every day about what you might do to having free reign. That can be overwhelming, right? Um, and and, and I, 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 it doesn't it does surprise me, the study, but when I think about it, I'm like, I'm not sure I am surprised because we put too much stock in means over happiness, mm-hmm. don't we? You know, I've got a big house, so I must be happy. And it's like, I'd rather have a small house with laughter than a big house with hollowness and echo. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I, I believe I believe when you say that, and I believe most people would say that too. But in reality, we, we, we still allow our minds to go down that route of, I need to have a big house, or I need to have a particular car, or I need to be, I don't know, running in a particular gear or whatever. We still do it. We, we can see how that's not going to bring us fulfilment but for some reason we can't snap ourselves out of it i think i i think again back to your point um um and back to what we're talking about earlier i think generically yes um you're absolutely right it's part of the reason why you know what that is that's probably part of that thing about the fatality factor we talked about on um, it might have been a season or two back when we talked about 
my actions will make no difference to the bigger picture. Therefore, I'll just conform. Um, so me recycling won't stop the planet heating. So why should I bother? You know, because people look at their individual action and look at it against the scale of the problem and then go, or the scale of the, the, the rest of the world and go, well, it's futile. Whatever I do doesn't matter. And it's about that whole point. But it's, well, it's futile me trying to be some sort of um, difference in a world of conformity. So I'm just going to buy a house in the housing estate and I'm going to have two cars in a garage and I'm going to convert the loft, whatever it may be. And um, eventually we all end up conforming. And I think as we get older, I think our ability to be um, dis dissident for ourselves, for our own sakes, I think it becomes really hard because you might have responsibility um, and you might have comfort. So you end up in that, I think there's a phrase they use, don't you, when for kind of middle-class people are unhappy in their jobs, um, in perennial debt, got a big blah, 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 all these things, and they call it a velvet rut because you can't afford to step out of what you're doing um, because of what, what the, the responsibilities you leave behind, but you're not happy with what you but have. It sure, it's but it sure is nice in here. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I've, got, uh, I've got some garden gnomes. Yeah, that's yeah. velvet. feels good on my skin. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I always think, whenever I say that phrase, Velvet Rut, I always think of the scene in Trainspotting where um, Renton ends up getting into the carpet, uh -huh. and I'm not sure that's what they mean by uh -huh. it, but you know that, what I mean. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's an image that stays with you for a long time. <clears throat> it does. Okay, um, there's there's another bias. Um, I like this one that you were talking about, this action bias, but um, one that I came across recently, uh, which fits quite well in this conversation, I think, and it's called an impact bias. So it's related to our emotions specifically, uh, where we badly forecast how we're going to feel about a certain situation or future event. So not only are we maybe poor at predicting what real and tangible good a future goal is going to do for us, we also poorly predict how that's actually going to feel. How, how am I going to feel emotionally about that? So maybe thinking the bad situation is going to feel like the most awful thing in the world and it's going to be with me for the rest of my life to thinking that something good is going to bring us some lifelong sense of achievement and contentment. I know even in quite a simplistic way, I've, I've probably done this with race results, you know, months before an event and even in the event itself. If I just win this race, then I'm going to feel the happiest I've ever felt. I won't really care about any other race in the future. This is it. If I can win this, it's going to be absolutely amazing. Um, and I wondered if you feel like you've been able to see that in yourself at all and you've maybe been able to temper it a little bit or are you just the same as the rest of us and you maybe oversell yourself the future state feelings and emotions, be it good and bad? You know, are you the same as us and... and and just thinking, if I win this race or I get this FKT, I'm going to feel on top of the world. And I'm going to feel great forever because I think I think we can embellish that quite quickly, or our our minds automatically build this much bigger narrative than what we actually feel as a result of of these outcomes. Uh, I, I've, yeah, totally, Paul, totally. Um, and it's almost like deflected delusion, right? It's almost like if I kick the feelings that might come from this thing I'm doing down the road. I don't need to deal with the reality of what it might not be right now. So, for example, um, um, and in fact, maybe I'll put this back to you, actually. I remember you, you ran, I can't remember the name of the race. It was a really famous race in Holland. Um, and you won the race by quite some way, but you missed the course record by six mm -hmm. seconds. You remember that? And you remember we had a conversation about it and I was really surprised because I'm like, well, let's celebrate. You know, you've done brilliant. But you were kind of caught between 
the joy of winning a race, naming a trophy, going to be there forever, versus narrowly missing out on that course record. And I think that's a good example of impact bias. It's like that six or seven seconds mm-hmm. of difference had a massive sway on how you felt. Do you remember I that? I do, James. Actually, I'd, I'd forgotten about it and I'm absolutely devastated. You brought it oh, back sorry. up again. I'm only joking. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, it's a really good point. I, I don't think I would feel the same way about that situation now. So I think that was maybe a level of immaturity at that point or maybe maybe I wasn't so self-aware at that point. And you're right, that, that did take it off. And I don't know, like it, it it's in combination with with the pressures that you maybe feel externally through social media and peers and everything as well. It's like, I, I feel quite uncomfortable about things like that sometimes now that if you might even say, um, oh, I, I won a race or whatever. And I, I'm not like one of those guys that posts up, oh, I won a race, smashed it and whatever. But even if when people know you've maybe done well at a race or something, the automatic reaction now from people is, oh, did you break the course record? And it's like, what is, is that not enough? It's like, we're not enough for people anymore. It's not It's not enough to perform. You have to outperform everything. You need to outperform history as well. And it's like, it's not a good place to be, I don't think. So um, I, I, I wouldn't take that so seriously now. I don't think I would let that affect me too much. Although six seconds is always going to hurt, isn't it, when you're, when you're that close? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, but when you think about that in context, though, you used the phrase um, immature. I'm, I'm not sure that was. I think you are um, potentially still forming the identity that you were happy with at that point. Mm-hmm. So you were probably unhappy because maybe the external pressures and perceptions were leaving you to think that that was failure if that's too strong mm-hmm. a word when in reality you're now because you're now in control of your own identity and you're happy with what you do regardless of what others see and the only person you need to satisfy is yourself in theory and i know you'll probably have moments where you're in and out of that mm-hmm. but the, the point there being is is that now you wouldn't sweat that because actually you would go did i do what i had to on the day and i and and, and i bring that up because last week or two weeks ago when i did the the fkt run um lots of people were like Oh, that was really good, you know, you knocked out the park, blah, 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 blah. And it was, like, it was 19 and a half hours, great, I was really happy. Actually, it was slightly less than I planned to. But about 20 miles in, I was like, I'm going to run under 19 hours here. And all of a sudden, my happiness and my, um, if you like to, to use that impact bias phrase, started to be anchored around that number mm-hmm. for no reason. Mm-hmm. For no reason. Mm-hmm. So you, so for, you've gone there. You know, you've created a narrative in your mind. It. You can see what that feels like. Exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. I feel like I should be lying down on the couch now that you've talked that out of me. Um, and then we can work our way through to blaming it on the parents or whatever else. But no, totally. And I'm only through you mentioning that and talking about it that I realise that actually, genuinely, on the way home in the car, I felt a wee bit hollow because I didn't reach a number that I had no right to even think about and actually no idea was whether it was even achievable <laughs> um, and all that kind of great stuff. And that I'd just set upon somewhere north of Dalgetty Bay when I was already part way yeah. through. So we, we all do it. You're absolutely right. We're all you doing it. You knocked me for six with that one, James, actually. Um, about that Dutch race. You're totally right. And I, I, I actually <laughs> think I, your point about... I, I think there are certain things that feel very important to me, right? And it might be like I want to put my best self out there. And 
in some ways I might have felt like I let people down by not achieving that six more seconds or whatever in that race, right? So I think if I feel like I don't let people down, then that's going to make me happy. But ultimately, that's never going to make me happy because there'll always be some kind of comment. I'm relying on other people saying to me that, yes, you put your best self out there, Paul, which is crazy. Anyway, I haven't thought this through, but I'm going to be thinking it through all night. Uh, <laughs> I'm really sorry, man. Listen, for anyone listening, Paul's not having a sleep tonight. <laughs> um, we'll be having a chat tomorrow about how I've handled... But seriously, though, it's great to talk this stuff out. And I would even go as far as to say, another example impact bias, and you were kind of touching on it there, is that example where you do something great or you do something that's satisfying, fulfilling, and you're talking about other people and all of that, and you get 100 comments. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, that was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And then you get one person saying, yeah, it didn't really work for me. And how often, and we probably both do it, do you end up sinking towards that one that one negative in a sea of positive? All the time, James. All it the happens, time. And, and social yeah. media is set up for that, isn't it? I mean, they, they, they deliberately use that because it keeps you going back and it keeps you motivated to do more, I think. Yeah, I, I do that. I can't, I, can't, I can't help but avoid, or I can't avoid doing it for some reason. So the only way to avoid doing it is to avoid seeing it and just, you know, and, and for some people it's actually really quite healthy for them, for them to just extricate them from the, the, the stuff that causes those um, biases and those feelings, isn't it? So you see you see it often, how often do you see like famous people saying, I'm taking a break from Twitter because no matter what, there's always someone who's got something nasty to say and and, and, and or something not nice and whether it's like, uh, it's not all that, Paul. It wasn't even a course record yeah. when you've just won a famous yeah. race or, or through to slagging you for your beard. They don't realise that that kind of thing, that one comment could be the difference between your happiness on that day mm-hmm. and your despair or, or, or downright, you know, a, just unhappiness, you know. Um, and I think there's something in that about not only how we take impact bias on, but also how we can actually give it through our, our actions and our conversations. Yeah, that's a good point, James. Mate, this is we didn't intend to go no. here, but this might be a subject for another twenty-seven podcasts. I think even talking about this, in some ways, I, I I kind of feel like saying, well, what what chance do we actually have? Is there any point in all of this at all about self-awareness? I I clearly have no clue about some basic fundamentals about my own self-interests. So, what chance do we really have of finding happiness or fulfillment? So one. Fundamentally, I think we're bad at achieving desired outcomes, right? Number two, I think we have limited capacity to understand the complexity of the outcomes and any movement or steps we take towards them. And number three, we have little clue as to how we're going to feel when we actually get there. So I wonder if sometimes there's any point in looking deeper, particularly when some... Well, it's a bit of a trend. I haven't seen specific research, but I think there's a bit of a trend about research showing that people who go down that rabbit hole of introspection maybe suffer higher levels of anxiety and lower states of well-being overall um i wondered what you thought about that and if you think it is the right place to go and um yeah or if you agree with that that you're you're maybe initially going to be more anxious and um be less well off by by doing that work you know something um it might, that might even come full circle back to the point earlier on about it's one thing being smart, but it's how you make the connections with that yeah. information. So as you say, you, you might be going deeper and deeper introspection, finding out things, whether it's say through counselling or coaching or conversation, and you find yourself in a position where 
you find out things or you work out things that you're not happy with that stimulate the need for change, say, um, and then that change becomes daunting and just overwhelms you. Um, so you end up in a worse position. But it's back to, I guess, the point is, is I don't think going deeper to try and get a greater level of self-understanding is in and of itself the wrong thing to do and something that people should back away from. I think that the right thing is about how you do it, how you use the information and how you take control of your thoughts about what that tells you, what, whatever it may be. And, I, I, you know, let, let's say, let's use a really set, almost random example, right? How often have you seen, for example, um, people who are in a marriage, for mm -hmm. example, um, who they're unhappy, one, one of them's unhappy and they don't know why. And then when they get to thinking about it and they get in the conversation, they get some help. It turns out they might be, and I'm talking, let, let's let's make it really kind of blunt. I'm talking about a, um, a heterosexual marriage. But actually it turns out maybe the, the husband or the wife are gay. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know that because society's conditioned them to think that, you know, this is a nuclear marriage. It's 2.3 children's, you know, Ford Monday on the driveway and a three-bedroom semi-detached. You know, and they've been conditioned to think that. But once they start to get to know that, they, they'll probably go through a journey of hating themselves for having those feelings, hating themselves for leading a, um, a false life, hating themselves for the impact that'll have on potentially their partner, their husband, their wife, um, and maybe even their kids, their dogs and their cats, whatever it might be, but they've found out the truth. And surely once you know the truth, you can then take the right action for yourself and ultimately for the benefit of others, even though in that moment it probably feels horrific. And I think that's a really good example of where if they don't dive deep on that, they'll just live their life with, a, 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 I guess, a like a topsoil level of unhappiness, where flowers and grass will grow, but it'll never be, it'll never be what they and the people they supposedly love really want. Yeah, it's a wee bit deep, and I don't, I don't think I meant to go there, but I guess I'm making the point that that's a really extreme example. But if you don't do it, how can you ever make it better? Yeah, and we'll automatically going back to earlier points. We'll automatically create this whole scenario and these set of future circumstances that make it the most awful thing in the world to have that conversation you know my life is going to fall apart nobody's going to love me and uh, life is going to be over i'm going to lose everything that was ever important to me and uh, we're quite quick to do that i think when i'm sure sometimes in situations like that they've actually turned out to be the best things that they've ever done in their lives and that horrible dread and um future future worry um, has turned out to um, make them much more content people, ultimately. Uh, uh, you're 100% right. And of course, there will be collateral damage, but it should be your path as an individual to um, happiness, contentment, whatever it might be. And it's a similar story to the one I told about the, the work context earlier. Without realising and taking the time to think about how I was wrong, how I was approaching it in a, in a way that wasn't great, how I was starting to create conflict, just through my attitude and behaviour and, you know, almost I was digging in because because of what was going on. As soon as I released my vulnerability and realised what I needed to do and the things that I needed to say, that that was release one. Then saying it and then having the bravery to bring it all together and that example was, that was really difficult. Mm. But I would absolutely encourage people to do it. And somebody said something to me once, Paul, um, and it stuck with me. It was a, a manager I worked with once and he said, the ultimate act of cowardice is a leader or a friend, or a lover, is not to tell someone the truth. Mm. 
no matter how hard that truth is to share, whether it's you, I don't love you anymore, or whether it's, I do love you, I guess, or whether it's like, you need to change this. Um, and this is like a total random thing. I had a situation once where um, a colleague, horrific personal hygiene, and nobody wanted to tell him for, for fear of hurting his feelings. And it turned out this colleague had so much stress going on at home with a whole bunch of things, right? We don't, we don't want to go into any of the detail that he didn't have the time because he, he was so busy looking after everyone else at mm. home and he was rushing to get to work that he didn't have the time to look after himself because he was in service of others. And the solution was to basically say, soon you come to work, take 15 minutes to sit down, have a nice breakfast in the canteen because it's cheap and go for a shower. And he's like, he says it was, it, for him, it was maybe one of the biggest stress releases of his life. Mm. So that's the point, telling them the truth helped him get to an answer that helped him across his life. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I I think if you asked a lot of people, they're, they're, they would probably suggest that they're okay getting uh, an augmented view of reality because they maybe don't want to hear the truth, which says a lot about an individual, but um, maybe we can come on to that some other time. But I can definitely see, mm. I can se- definitely see some merit in the term that ignorance is bliss in some ways. But um, I guess... On a personal level, I'd, I don't I don't feel that you can live a fulfilled life without looking more closely at your own particular variables. Um, but maybe maybe we yeah. need to learn more about how to go about doing that properly. And even just the conversations that we've had already, I know I can think a bit more about something I said or something I did to someone else, and then I can easily create a reason in my mind about why I did it, right? But then I worry about how much of that is just narrative, how much of that is my mind filling in the blanks. Um, and come maybe coming to conclusions based on a small amount of information that I can actually see or detect. And if you remember that at one point, obviously, a flat earth was a perfectly sensible and respected opinion because they had no evidence or knowledge to suggest otherwise, then I worry about I, I could come to some of these conclusions quite quickly myself um, based on some of the biases that I'm not even aware of. Um, and I think having some tools maybe and maybe we'll come on to that to, to talk about any tools or any things that you can maybe do to try and improve that that um self-inquiry process maybe and some of the books i've read recently um, on self-awareness there's a suggestion that asking yourself what questions are more effective than asking why questions as it's a bit more objective and it's less likely to be overtaken by some of these biases that we've talked about and some of these simple oversimplifications that we've talked about have you got any suggestions and ideas on how to make any kind of introspection more effective maybe yeah i think the first thing and i guess we want to try and keep this simple and practical so this is how to do it in five minutes i'm only only kidding Um, sign up now because i sign up now yeah newsletter etc unsubscribe but i think it's really difficult to cover off such a broad subject with a summary um, and a few things to do. But I do think there are foundational points that we all, if we're interested in this, need to um, get into. Is I think thing one is, is you need the space for inquiry. Um, and whether that's space for meditation, whether it's space to listen to music and let the brain switch off so that it, it can move towards that more thinking state, whether it's space to have conversation with people who you trust that will give you advice, whatever it is, if you're finding no space in your life to challenge your thinking or your feelings, then 
you won't challenge your thinkings or feelings. So you, you need that foundational aspect of creating a bit of space. Um, and then the second thing is, is um, feedback. And that might seem like such an easy word, but that feedback has to be meaningful and relevant. And that's your feedback to yourself. It's feedback um, from others. Um, it's feedback from trusted people. So whether it's a coach, a counsellor, a friend, a family member, whatever, but that information that you've created space for, get that into that space and then use it. And then and then I think the next thing, so I'm going to give forward the, sec the, the second last one would be curiosity. So asking questions of self, asking questions of others and taking on board information and then using it, um, I think is, is key. And I think I, I've said and using it and that's the last thing is, is try things, experiment and don't be scared to get it wrong. So you've got to take action because if you don't take action, all the information and all the space and all the support in the world is meaningless. So that would probably be my kind of four steps that I would suggest we consider. Yeah, I actually find... It's just such a simple thing, and it's pretty obvious um, considering who 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 we are and what we're talking about. But I find running has helped me quite a lot. Like some days, I might spend entirely on a laptop. You're working, and you're maybe feeling pretty low overall because you got a lot to do, and you're worried about a lot of stuff. Uh, but there's something about the movement and the fact that when you're out there, you're not looking for, or you're not able to fill your attention with other things that you can do at home. You know, it's easy to stick on some music at home or watch a video or whatever or speak to someone and I think that space can be really beneficial for people it doesn't have to be running it could be walking because I think a lot of you kind of need to be doing I think sometimes an activity that's a kind of low level activity in order to give you space to let some of those ideas and um, thoughts um, find a way out and find a, a better way of dealing with them. The only thing I need to maybe do sometimes is is to write things down when I come back in because it's easily forgotten again. And it happened even the other day. It's been a tough couple of weeks coming off the back of Cape Wrath and catching up with work and you're probably feeling a bit low and there's probably hormone imbalances from missing sleep and all that kind of stuff. And um, I think I'd spent the whole day on the computer and I wasn't even really able to run but I'd gone out for a walk again and I walk in a bit of a forest near me and all of a sudden you know that kind of big cloud that was hanging over you and feeling really heavy there was just some chinks of light coming through and um, yeah it was it was quite a good reminder I think and I think it's something that people can get a lot from that it doesn't have to be a formal meditation sometimes I think maybe just being out and moving no. sometimes can be quite a beneficial thing apparently um see apparently if, if it's your thing because we, we all get caught up in that meditation trap right it's like sit still breathe mm -hmm. in you know play whale music and all that if, if it works for you the whole point is is it's about calming the mind and all that stuff it might work for you to lie back lie back on the couch fire on slipknot and just disappear into the mm -hmm. music and you're just kind of you're visualizing whatever you might be visualizing but the point is is it's whatever gets you away from those heightened states of arousal um, and actually, for some people, just sitting and listening to music gives them the same effect as meditation. And we, we kind of get caught up in thinking meditation is the answer. But you're absolutely right. Meditation, active movement. You can do meditative walking where you're just soaking in um, the um, environment. All of that. And uh, Paul, you, could, you, you hit the absolute nail on the head. Space doesn't necessarily have to be sitting still thinking. It can be moving and reflecting, all of that stuff. Or just allowing those things to work subconsciously in your mind but you absolutely made another great point which is you do need some way of 
making sure you capture the key points, whether in the moment or afterwards, to um, or whatever action or whatever it is you decide to do next, because often those thoughts can drift by when Easy. we're, yeah. you know, 25 minutes away from a pen and a uh-huh. paper. I think so. And I think people maybe don't even know well, what could be kind of useful introspective questions to ask. So I think things like, you know, because that example I was given about feeling pretty low and working all day and then going out for a walk, you can easily just allow that stuff to circle around and circle around and circle around and you don't really get anywhere. But I think sometimes if you ask some good quality questions like, I don't know, how how is my life going or what is my biggest worry? And then actually try to connect some of that up to physical feelings in your body. And I think we're both, I think you maybe had a presentation recently, but I've read like at least three books um, that showed distinct differences in the success of any kind of therapy, like psychotherapy or anything, when the patients are able to connect up those feelings and thoughts with something physical in their body. So it might be like, I feel a tightness in my chest when I think about everything that I need to get done this week, or I feel a burning nervousness in my tummy when I think about the race I'm going to do next week. And um, I wondered if you'd any more to add to that. I know you've heard something recently about being able to connect that up. I think it, I think it's yeah. really, really important. Yeah, and I think it's definitely worth a deeper dive in one of our um, upcoming episodes as part of this series. Um, so I, I had a talk with um, um, a guy called John Gomez, or Sean Gomes, sorry, um, um, and he, 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 he kind of really tried to simplify what mindset was and how it's important and how, how if we're in control of it, it makes such a massive difference to um, both our feelings of success and our actual um, chances of success. And he basically said, mindset is a continuous interplay between physical feeling, internal thought, and what you see, and that equals knowing. And he said, and the point he was making is, is a lot of people think mindset's all about what's going on inside the top of your head. He says, but actually, your physical feeling is the single biggest influencer on a lot of this. Um, so whether you're tired, you're run down, you're maybe, you mentioned hormone imbalance, I'm sure you would have been irritable because your hormone imbalance and all of that is making you feel so then your feeling or your knowing ends up being angry at the reason why you're feeling irritable but in, in reality it's just because you're feeling a bit fatigued um, and the brain basically his, his point was is the brain helps us manage our body budget which means it's managing your physical and your mental body budget and therefore it's important that we're we're dialed into both so there's a lot he talked about in that space which it was the first time I'd heard somebody going in such detail he says but you need to be absolutely dialed into the fact that your physical feeling has a significant bearing on your emotional well-being. I think so, and I think there's been a fair amount of research done. I can't remember the name of the book I read it a while ago. It was something like The the Body Keeps a Score or something, but it was basically saying any of these big emotional traumas that we have in our life, like a bereavement or something else like that, we actually carry that physically in our body at times. Um, and it's yeah. like just it's, tension uh-huh. and all. It's that just stuff. what we've talked about earlier, isn't it? We we just don't connect the two. We just like these little packets of well, that's a mental thing and that's a physical thing, and we don't really see that it's all part of a bigger system. But um, yeah, okay. So before we finish up, maybe um, I also think there's some value in modelling other people sometimes, and maybe asking yourself about the qualities that you admire and someone else and and seeing how that's reflected in in a felt sense so maybe you could take on some of the or think more deeply about some of the attributes that you see in somebody that might be 
I don't know, it might be a famous runner or it might just be somebody that you really admire from a work perspective who, who does things in a certain way or carries himself in a certain way and has particular qualities that you feel quite connected to. Um, and I think that can also be quite a useful thing to do if you're doing this work in terms of introspection. And I wondered if you had any anybody maybe from the past, it might be somebody famous or it might be somebody personal who's whose qualities you've maybe admired or you've maybe tried to aim towards at times? Um, well, yeah, and, I, and I, yeah. So, I mean, if you look at from a, a an athlete point of view, um, one of the athletes, and it was a very early um, running book I read when I was getting into running, and it stuck with me ever since. And I'm not saying I want to replicate this individual, um, but there was something in this individual's ethic and determination and their engagement with what they were doing and the, and the environment and the world they lived in at the time that really, really, it really resonated with me. And it plays a big part in my work ethic from a running point of view that says, I might not be the most talented, but if I work harder, I'll make the best of the talent I've got. So I'm not the fastest. So I need to work on things like mindset and endurance and resilience. Mm -hmm. And it was um, Emil Zapotec, mm -hmm. right? Who, when you watch Emil Zapotec run, he is not Elliot Kipchoge, right? He's all over the place, like a like the classic octopus falling out a tree with his running style and stuff. But no one, no one outworked him. And no one probably had the mindset he had at the time he was running the way he did. So I, th there was something in that saying, I want to mimic the better traits that he has. But what I would say, Paul, though, what I would say is, is I think you can do that the other way as well. And you can look at people and say, and I don't want to be like that person. Or there's traits of other people that you can look to avoid as mm -hmm. well. Because as much as you can take um, vicarious influence from others and go, what they're doing is, is I want to replicate. You can look at it the other way as well and go, I would never do what they're doing, which might, might be any number of things. Um, so I hope that makes sense. But what about yourself? Any anyone you would you would look to? I don't know. I think there there must have been people. I'm not. I don't mean I'm not into famous people, but I don't really follow that many famous people that I've that I've felt hugely influenced by. I guess there's been some people in the Scottish running scene at times that just the way they handle themselves around races and the way they prepare for races definitely had an impact on me early on. But I I. I would like to do some more work on that and actually maybe get a bit closer to some people and 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 be able to model some of their behaviours. I think that's some useful work that I could do going forward, I think, coming out of this conversation. I, I, I think so. And, I, and, I, and I, I'll reinforce that point again. It's something I do quite early in any mentoring conversation is, is who is it you admire and why and what do they do that you want to be able to do? And who is it that... I don't want to use the phrase you don't admire... But who is it that causes you a bit of chagrin? Who is it that maybe makes you feel, mm, that's not for me? What is it? And how do you make sure you you avoid replicating that thing as well? Because I think it's good to think of both sides, both in terms of achievement and avoidance. Yeah, it's funny. It's a question we ask on the athlete intake form for somebody who's coming to us to be co coached. Yeah. And uh, your name's popped up a few times, James. On the avoidance list, I'm assuming. No, no, yeah. not at all. <laughs> not on the, the avoidance list. Absolutely. No. In the admiration list. Yeah. So well done with that. Um, oh, I'm <laughs> so we should probably wind it up here I think we could both probably go on all day about this kind of stuff and we've maybe lost a few people already with us moving around the subject pretty quickly and unstructured but I really enjoyed the conversation today um, and I'm looking forward to the next one 
Um, so thanks to everyone for hanging out with us today. If you'd like to support the podcast, then all you have to do is subscribe, leave us a comment, share it on social media, or just have some discussion with others about the topics we covered today. We believe in you and the potential that lies dormant in all of us and having these conversations is a step towards a better community and a supportive environment where we can all thrive where we can be clearer about our own values and the things that are going to bring us closer to contentment. Uh, we will likely put out a bonus episode in between the next and this series. Um, I think we'll probably get Graham and one of the support crew to come along and talk about the whole Cape Wrath adventure. And James has volunteered to dig a bit deeper into the what, the why and the real result of running 240 miles across the remote highlands of Scotland in four days. Uh, James, I wondered if you had anything you wanted to add. I know um, we were going to maybe try and formalise some of this and maybe get some people involved and write some stuff on the back of this podcast. Yeah, I would love to hear. I mean, we've shared we've shared a lot of thoughts on things you can do, mitigation, things you can do to deepen your self-awareness and all of that. And it, I think it would be great if anyone listening was willing to just share them with us via the the means that we put out the foot of the podcast so you can tag us on social media or just drop us a mail um, and we'll maybe bring them together as a collection um, and a wee bonus blog that we'll pull together um, just to augment this because we are acutely aware um, that we cannot cover everything um, because we have our own biases we have our own lived experiences and bringing together a collection of others views and thoughts um, would be a brilliant resource for the people who both listen to this podcast and, and, and follow the, the, the blog and the, the, the pile in life. So it would be really good just to pop them across to us and we'll bring it together over the next couple of weeks. Sounds good, James. Always good to get you writing stuff as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Great. Okay, we'll leave it there, guys. I'm Paul Giblin. And I'm James Stewart. And you've been listening to the Pylon Ultra Pod. Nice. Okay. Before we finish, just a quick thought from me. Uh, the word dukkha has cropped up two or three times for me the last few days from a number of different sources. And when that happens, it feels like it's something that I'm meant to look into further. And as it happens, it fits well with some of the conversations I've just had with James. As far as I understand it in Buddhism, it in part refers to the true nature of all existence and formed part of the Buddha's first ever sermon on the Four Noble Truths. Specifically, it seems to translate as unsatisfactoriness or the general suffering of life. Some of the stuff we just don't like to talk about, let alone accept. We don't like to talk about the physical and emotional discomfort we all experience in our lives, illness, ageing, unsustainable relationships and all the others. We spend our lives clinging to pleasurable experiences and we feel sad or distraught when they pass or we lose something that we felt was important to us. We don't want to accept the truth of impermanence. Nothing lasts forever. Those permanent achievements that we strive for can't possibly bring us permanent satisfaction. That promoted position at work, that extra bedroom at home, that race win, that perfect relationship or early retirement. So what do we do about finding longer lasting fulfilment? If I've learned anything from this discussion, it's that I'm not sure I can really trust the wants that I believe I have are actually a valid and useful indicator of what will genuinely bring me satisfaction. If we could maybe learn to ignore or at least use them to drive a much deeper understanding of the real mechanics of satisfaction and fulfilment, we might stop putting our well-being solely in the hands of chance. And that introspection work and improved self-awareness 
will help us to take so much more from the short and impermanent lives that we've been gifted. Thanks for listening. Cheers.